Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Alto Performance Insights. This is episode eight now. Daniel, good to see you. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It's going well. Um, lots of exciting things. I know it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we've been here on the podcast, but in the meantime, uh, let's talk a little bit about some exciting things for Alto. We've, uh, we've launched our services division, um, so now partnering with uh, other sports performance companies to provide sports science consulting and some resources. You want to kind of share some of the, some of the good news there, Dan? We uh, have created a partnership with armcare.com. We're going to be uh, some of their product testing and uh, we're also going to be doing a little bit of data analytics for them. So we're excited about that. And then we also recently partnered with heavy metal baseball out of Amarillo, Texas. Uh, those guys are great. Uh, they are running a, a great program down there and they are very, very passionate about integrating data into their, um, and it, I guess you could call it their training pipeline. Um, they are completely athlete centered. I know we, we you and I have discussed uh, offline at, after every meeting with them, you know, we talk about how fired up we are to work with them just because uh, they've got this energy to them. So we're really excited about that new partnership too. Yeah. And both, um, both of those companies, I think, are definitely innovative and really have very unique ideas and approaches to what they do. And, you know, just kind of looking for some people to maybe provide some of the more classical science behind it, but also, uh, you know, really help them understand the, the physiological impact of uh, maybe what they're doing in arm care's case with their product and in heavy metals case with their their training and that's a lot of our experience. So really looking forward to, to growing this side of Alto performance for sure. So today we're going to uh, dive in with the podcast. We're going to continue uh, looking at the bio of biomechanics, specifically in sports science. Uh, so we're going to talk about EMG or electromyography. In, in my experience personally, <laughs> I will say, this is one of the trickier uh, pieces of technology and data to gather in sports science. And it's something that uh, still is maybe not the most user friendly. So we're gonna dive in a little bit into some of our own experiences, some cool technology that is out there that is uh, you know, customer facing and, and marketably available. But uh, first let's, let's talk a little bit more just about what, what is electromyography. Yeah, sure. So. I guess broad strokes, you could call it uh, muscle activity. It's a way to assess the electrical activity that's being driven towards muscles. Um, so I guess let's start with the very basics to talk a little bit about movement and how muscles contribute to movement and then how we activate those muscles. All right. So, okay. So you're talking about a movement. Um, let's just say rotation at a joint. Let's say you're, you know, flexing at the elbow joint. Well, to flex at the elbow joint, you need to pull on your forearm up like this, right? So towards the upper arm. So to do that, uh, you're gonna contract your biceps. So to get that contraction, you need the muscle fibers to actually shorten, um, create a concentric contraction. And to do that, you need to drive electricity into that muscle, right? And so to get electricity into the muscle, you've got neurons. So you've got motor neurons. Um, a motor neuron itself can go in and uh, innervate multiple muscle fibers and so uh, if the neuron fires, it's basically binary, it's firing or it's not firing. So if the motor neuron fires, it's going to activate basically or cause a contraction in all of the fibers 
that it innervates. And so all of the fibers that a single motor neuron innervates is considered or referred to as a motor neuron or a motor unit rather. Right, so you've got a bunch of different motor neurons driving into this muscle and you're activating um, different neurons at different times and that's driving electricity into the muscle giving you a contraction. Right? So EMG broad strokes is measuring that electricity. How, how on earth does it do that? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I don't think we need to go into um, the physics behind capturing elect uh, like electrical fields uh, for the purposes of this podcast. Um, but there are essentially two different types of EMG. I think most of our users or the people that we work with are going to prefer option number two, but I'll go through both of them. So the first one would be inserting um, an electrical uh, recording device into the actual muscle itself. So this would be below the skin. These are typically um, needles that are inserted into a muscle. And that needle is picking up an electrical field from all of the neurons surrounding that needle. All right, so obviously that's invasive. Uh, you're inserting something into the actual uh, muscle. That can be painful. Um, it's hard to convince people to do that. <laughs> so I feel like that's the kind of study you get paid a lot to participate in. Yeah, you either get paid a lot or you're a graduate student that gets paid nothing to participate. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's fair enough. That's one option. two is uh, skin mounted. So this is not invasive. You just uh, basically um, shave down the area of skin and then you put the electrode on top of that skin. So you're typically looking for, you know, if you're collecting from the bicep, you're looking for the usually the mid belly um, of the muscle. And then you put the electrode on top of the skin over the bicep and you are collecting uh, data basically through the skin. Uh, it's the same thing, same concept. You're uh, capturing an electrical field. And it's a field because it's a lot of different neurons uh, being activated at the same time. So you're not collecting data from a single neuron, you're collecting data from a field of neurons. Right, that makes sense. And also, uh... How does, how does this work with wires? Because I could, it sounds like the more invasive kind, um, you know, like if you have wires running all over the place, that might work in a research setting, but for a lot of the work that we do in, in sports science, that's going to be an inhibitor. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing as uh, active versus passive motion capture, right? So there are active systems that tend to have a lot of wires and they typically go into some kind of backpack or, or something off to the side and it can be limiting for movements. And so you can imagine trying to pitch with a bunch of wires uh, going everywhere. So there are wired systems, of course, but there are also wireless systems. So for example, uh, the lab that I work in currently works with a Trigno Delsis system, which is wireless. Uh, I believe we've got 16 different channels, so um, we can record uh, data from up to 16 different locations. So what, let, let's, let's talk through that part of this. Um, when you gave the example of a biceps curl or something, it makes a lot of sense. I'm actively thinking about triggering that, but um, obviously if we're doing things like 16 different channels, that's a lot of different muscles going on at once. It also sounds like, you know, we could do this with a variety of different movements, whether that's, you know, something like, as you just mentioned, baseball pitching, or what about like someone going for a run? Uh, how, how is it able to distinguish one muscle from another when, you know, let's say running, you have 
you know, both your knee flexors and extensors working throughout the movement. But we got to understand, you know, what's going on in a particular muscle. Yeah, so that's going to be, I mean, that's all about placement, right? So if you've got, um, you don't just want to pop one on the thigh and call it the quadriceps. What you want to do is you want to um, locate individual muscles and get them on there. And then the key is having them stay there, right? So you're typically going to have to wrap these things down if you want them to stay in place. Now, one of the issues with skin-mounted um, devices is that obviously skin moves and there's other things that sit on top of the muscle uh, underneath the skin that also inhibit its ability to, um, to collect electrical activity going towards the muscle. So if you've got a lot of uh, subcutaneous fat, for example, then uh, you're going to have a harder time getting an accurate signal. So physical specimens like yourself are probably going to be the target audience here. Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, people with a very, um, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't mean you can't collect this kind of data. It just makes it uh, more difficult to interpret the data, right? So it's all, it's all a kind of a balancing act. You have to figure out how accurate is your data? What do you have to do to the data? Um, and you, you started this podcast episode by talking about um, the user friendliness of this technology. And one of the things that makes it a little less user friendly is the amount of post collection processing that has to be done to get some kind of signal that you can uh, accurately interpret, right? And so when you add in on top of that processing, if you add in the other potential confounding factors like large amounts of subcutaneous body fat, um, it starts to get difficult to deal with. Right, uh, for sure. And that's, um, I know we've kind of been tossing some softball questions at each other because this is technology that we've both worked with, but I will say, you know, I went and got an undergrad degree in exercise science because I wanted to, you know, work in sports science. I never thought I'd have to understand what a filter was in terms of an electrical signal. Now, you know, obviously I've since learned that most data that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis is filtered quote unquote. Uh, but perhaps like you're saying, none, um, I don't know if more extensively is the right way to say it, but EMG data takes a lot of work to go from a raw signal to something usable. You want to kind of talk about some of the steps that are, that are pretty often take, taken there and at least for, for the average person to understand, sure. you know, what, what does it take to go from an electrical signal coming either through a needle or, or a skin sensor to understanding whether or not a muscle was activated, something just binary like you were talking about at the beginning, simple on or off answer. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're just looking for on or off, it's, it's not as much processing, but if you're looking to do anything else, it's a little bit uh, more involved. So you, you know, you mentioned filters sort of for uh, the non-technical members of our audience, a filter is basically just a way to smooth your data. So you're removing either low frequency or high frequency noise. Um, and what that means is basically anytime you're collecting data from a, from some kind of hardware, you are going to be dealing with certain amount a certain amount of the signal is just going to be noise. And so what that means is that it's not real, um, it's not real biological signal, right? So what we do in biomechanics is we collect things and then we try to figure out what about this is biological and then what is noise. And we try to filter out the noise and we try to keep the signal, right? Um, with EMG, we typically 
roll through a couple different filters. So we do a low pass filter to get rid of high frequency noise and we do a high pass filter to get rid of low frequency noise. So we're looking basically for an envelope of the signal that we trust is biological. Um, and then there's other things that we have to do. So uh, you, you, know, you apply these filters, the signal typically bounces positive and negative just because of how it's collected and the kind of data it is. So a lot of people will um, convert that kind of signal into a, a pure positive signal. So you get a, um, a pure positive curve. It'd be nice if I could uh, show some of this, so show some of the data just to, to give a nice visual overview of this as well. But um, after you do that positive, then you can start, like, you know, after you convert the signal, then you can start doing things like pulling um, peak activation, for example. So if it's positive and negative, it's hard to pull a peak because the signal's bouncing up and down. Um, the peak might be in a negative area or it might be in a positive area. So that's why you would do that kind of conversion. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, uh, I, I guess it should be said, like this sounds like you're doing a lot of math and, and there's a lot of you know, behind the scenes uh, tricks to handling this data. But in reality, this type of filtering, especially of an electrical signal is really not that abnormal. Uh, and so it sounds a bit foreign to most of us in, in kinesiology and more clinical experiences, but handling data like this to filter it, to smooth it out and rectify it in order to really just be able to see um, the net effect of a signal is not an abnormal thing. I guess we should stress that. Right. Yeah. And no, there's some software that has the, these um, types of things built in that are in a user interface um, that are, that make it less difficult. You don't have to actually code this out yourself that, you know, the kind of conversion I was just talking about is, is an, it's called a root mean square envelope. So it's an RMS envelope and that converts the whole signal to a positive. And again, you want to do that because if you're looking for peak activation or, um, area under the activation you need the the signal to be uh, all in one direction so in this case we're making it positive um, it's just a way to get the data into a usable format is, is i guess what i would say sure so once you have it in a usable format what would you say are some of the cooler applications or or usefulness of emg that you've seen that I've seen or that I've done? <laughs> uh, either, I guess, I guess let's go with both of those. Sure, yeah, so I, I don't do a lot of work with EMG. Um, you know, most of my work is motion capture, force platform based. Uh, I like EMG for very basic things. So if, for example, I'm trying to take someone's joint through a passive range of motion, and I want to ensure that they're they are not assisting or resisting me moving their arm. For example, let's say, let's say I'm taking their knee joint through passive range of motion. Well, I wanna make sure that none of the muscles spanning the knee are activated such that they could help me move the joint or resist me moving the joint. And so you could pop a couple EMG uh, sensors on the quadriceps, the hamstrings, and then you could just uh, collect that data while you're moving the joint and you would then post-collection, look at the EMG signal to make sure that there was no activity. And then you could say that you truly moved the joint passively. Um, so that's a very, like, very 
easy application of this kind of technology. It's potentially, you know, you're not getting, that's, an, that's a scenario where you're not getting some outcome measure uh, that would be important for, you know, a guiding training, for example, but that's a, that's a very common use case for EMG. Uh, the other thing that we talked about already a little bit was looking at whether or not a muscle is active or not active. And so you can very easily identify whether or not um, there's a signal being driven to a muscle with this kind of technology. And then uh, what you can do with that is you can look at muscle sequencing. So if you've got some kind of complex movement and you want to know, you know, when are the quadriceps active versus when are the uh, hamstrings active versus when are the plantar flexors of the ankle active, then you can look at when each of those turn on in time relative to one another and you can start to sequence muscle activity. So that's another common and potentially useful uh, use case for EMG. Yeah, the sequencing part yeah, is- So like, let's, like, let's, I would say let's take, it, let's take it to another instance where you would wanna make sure that there's not muscle activity. So some of your master's work, I remember when you were doing this, <laughs> um, you, you were imaging an elbow and you needed to make sure there wasn't something that you referred to as muscle guarding. So you could talk about what, how, how would you use EMG to determine whether or not there's muscle guarding and for, yeah. first define what muscle guarding is, I guess. Sure. So, uh, when in the, in the baseball injury prevention world, when we're taking ultrasound images or MRI or, or x-ray of the medial elbow. Uh, when trying to look at valgus loading of the UCL and its its effect on the joint capsule as a whole, uh, we try to make sure that the individual is entirely relaxed so that there's not any muscle contraction across the elbow, which might decrease the total space that the joint opens up as a result of the loading. So the most common way is just simply to instruct the athlete to relax and to try to visually watch and check for that. And, and honestly, you can, if, if you have an athlete that's nervous or maybe hesitant about letting you work with their arm you, and you finally get them to relax, you can actually see the elbow joint open up on, on the ultrasound image. So you're right for my, for my masters as well as some of my PhD work, uh, that, was, that was an important piece. To be honest, we did a little bit of background research, a side project actually led by um, another master's student at East Carolina, Brian Diefenbach. And we actually just got this published recently, so that's exciting. But looking at individuals, we, they placed some uh, EMG electrodes on several of the forearm flexors and, and elbow flexor muscles and instructed individuals to either stay completely relaxed uh, or to actually have a little bit of an intentional contraction and measure the amount of force output or torque coming across the joint in relationship to EMG activation and found that perhaps uh, using EMG to monitor that could be a useful, a useful measure. To be honest, that wasn't something that we did in my own personal research simply because of time constraints and uh, the additional time that would have added to our data collections We're relatively confident and it's relatively normal practice to simply verbally instruct the athletes and, and kind of monitor that yourself. But they're definitely in, in, similar to what you're talking about when you want to make sure that someone is entirely relaxed, that's a really great way to kind of binarily look at an on-off signal. Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where 
I just, I have a hard time using EMG to look at things like peak muscle activation. Um, you know, it's not that you can't do that. You can certainly quantify those things. It's just for the type of research that I do, it hasn't been an important question. Um, and it's just, it's also difficult to, it's difficult to say what it means, right? Like what your peak muscle activation doesn't mean much to what my peak activation would be, right? Cause we've got different muscles. We've got different fiber typings. Uh, we've got different motor, different motor units, different amounts of motor units. So it's just, it's difficult for me to, uh, to say that those are like really, really useful analyses, I guess. It's not yeah. to say that they aren't, it's just hard to say, like, even, even if you do repeated measures, so it's my muscle activation versus my own muscle activation, let's say pre and post some training intervention. Okay, well, if my muscle activation goes up, we could say that it's a good thing. And if my muscle activation goes down, we can just say like, oh, you're getting the same force output with lower activation. So maybe your muscle's more efficient. So it's one of those things where you can take this, any result and fit it to meet whatever your initial narrative is. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's true as things exist today, but I am excited to see the technology continue to grow. And we've talked about this with a few other technologies that the more portable it gets, um, the more people will be able to use it and the more data we will just have as a field to perhaps gain a, a better understanding of this. And one of the things, um, that, that we've talked about a little bit here is the, the setup of you know placing either these skin electrodes on or, or needles into the muscles themselves that that kind of time consumption is going to be an inhibitor for widespread use in an athletic field which i think is one of the areas where emg you know perhaps could be beneficial especially looking at things like sequencing like you were just talking about a few minutes ago uh, so one of the things that like i would highlight is as as technology continues to advance perhaps we see a change in this there's two companies in particular that come to mind uh, athos coaching and MyonTech, M-Y-O-N-T-E-C, um, both of those companies have wearable EMG these days, meaning they have actually woven the technology into clothing, have a sensor that you clip in that, that records it, um, and they claim that they have sensors that specifically sit over certain muscles or certain muscle groups to where they can, they can pick this up. And I, I do think that there's the potential there for the industry as a whole to learn quite a bit uh, but certainly I think there's some technology advances that still need to come with EMG. Yeah, for sure. And you look at, you look at technology like that and I, I applaud their efforts and I think it's a great step um, toward our ultimate goal of getting the most accurate data possible. You just have to temper that with the fact that it's woven into clothing that's sitting on top of skin that's sitting on top of um, body fat that's sitting on top of a muscle. Um, and the muscle itself is surrounded by all sorts of different connective tissues. So, you know, it's the further away from the actual muscle you get, the less reliable your data is going to be. But that's just a limit. I mean, it's, it's just a limitation. We can't go sticking needles into everybody every time they go do something, right? So right. Um, as long as you understand the, the, the potential limitations in whatever device you're using, um, and you are clear about those limitations and you interpret your data with those limitations in mind, I think you're okay.
Yeah, uh, uh, I, I agree with you. And, and like you said, it's about it's about knowing the limitations, understanding them, and then understanding like how to work around them. And and with any of these technologies, you know, there's probably not going to be one magical silver bullet answer. Boy, yeah, that's for sure. I, you know, I, I say this about EMG, but it's true of any technology that we use. The same thing's true of, um, you know, different, different motion capture technologies. You always have to, uh, my dog's about to go crazy. Uh, <laughs> there's another dog outside. Uh, good. Amy can make um, an appearance. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anytime you're dealing with technology, you have to understand the limitations and you have to just, you just have to interpret your data with those in mind and you have to be clear about them, whether you're trying to publish a paper or you're working with athletes, you know, you have to, you have to know what the limitations are and you have to be able to communicate them and you have to be able to uh, know how they impact your end results. So. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, the other, the other thing that I want to say about EMG, um, just, for people, pe people in the audience that are planning on using EMG or already use it, um, a very common thing that you have to do with EMG is you have to get some kind of, you have to make it relative. So for example, you have to make it relative to uh, a person's uh, one repetition max voluntary contraction. Uh, this is very commonly done. So you have someone before, before whatever data you're collecting, you have them uh, do some kind of maximum voluntary contraction you measured the muscle activity with your EMG during that contraction. And then subsequently, whenever they're doing the task that you're actually collecting data for, you look at it relative to their max. So it's like, oh, this person did a sit to stand or a squat at, you know, their quad was at 80% of their maximum uh, voluntary contraction. Uh, now, the interesting thing about that, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is because it's not uncommon to see values over a hundred percent during relatively low amplitude movements. And so this is commonly seen in the walking literature. You have individuals do an ankle plantar flexor task, one repetition max, and then they walk and their plantar flexors or calf muscles are at like 150% of their max during walking, during like slow speed walking. Uh, so it's just one more of those things that we don't fully understand. Like what's the difference between a more dynamic movement like walking versus a more isolated movement, like just pushing your foot forward to get your calf muscles fully active. Uh, so, you know, there's just one more slight limitation in this kind of technology. We're still working out uh, how to deal with those kinds of things. Right. And it's, it's amazing to think like we think about walking as a very simple action. We all do it, you know, almost every day, but it's amazing how complex that actually gets when you start to think about um, like individual muscle activation or muscle group activation. Every right. step you, you I take. Thought, uh, when I went from my undergrad where I studied. Right. Sorry. I cut, I cut you off and I think I missed, uh, I missed a little bit of what you said. No, you're good. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so when I went from undergrad where, where I studied mostly running uh, and running related injury mechanics uh, to my master's, I started studying walking and I thought going in that walking was going to be so much easier. And let me tell you, I was, I was wrong. <laughs> it's a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, 
it's amazing how like and we take it for granted right and so there's so much that goes into there's so much still we don't know that goes into it whether it's at a muscle level a, a full motion level um, i mean there's hundreds of labs across this country that study walking on a daily basis right yeah if you think walking simple then just take a look at how people are designing uh bipedal robots and what kind of difficulty they're having <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a good point so I think that's going to kind of wrap things up here for, for talking about EMG. It's definitely, um, like we've been saying, a, a complex technology, but does provide a, another lens through the skin. Um, just like we talked about with ultrasound a couple of weeks ago, different ways to understand uh, the, the physiology that makes the mechanics of, of human movement possible. Yeah. And I'd also just, you know, I'd invite anybody in our audience that uh, has a more extensive background using this kind of technology. I mean, you and I know about it. We know generally how to work with the data because we both had to do it, um, particularly during our master's as part of some of our coursework. Um, but if there's anybody out there that has more extensive, a more extensive background with it and want, want to come on and talk to us a little bit about it and, um, you know, make a, make a, a, I guess, a better case for it. Uh, I'd, I'd be I think we'd both be happy to have you on so let us know yeah completely agree with you well Daniel it's been been great talking to you again this week and uh look forward I, th I think our next episode we're going to be joined by by I guess and talk about some of the the neural aspects of, of sports science yeah he should be able to give us a little, a little bit more of the <laughs> background on EMG but I think he's going to be talking more about EEG so he's probably going to be talking more about the like you know brain data is that right yeah, that's, that's, uh, I believe so. So we'll, we'll hold that as the teaser for this week and uh, make sure everyone comes back and joins us next time. Yeah, let's uh, you go ahead and plug the, plug the site. You can catch us uh, at www.altosportsperformance.com and you can also find us on uh, Twitter and Instagram. So. Excellent. Well, until next time, thanks for joining us. Daniel, take care. You too, man. I'll see you. Thank you.